This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today, Jake Adelstein. He is the author of Tokyo Vice, also an executive producer on the Tokyo Vice HBO Max series. He spent years in Japan as a reporter covering organized crime. Fascinating guy. You can follow him on Twitter at Jake, J-A-K-E-A-D-E-L-S-T-E-I-N, and on Instagram at Tokyo Vice. Now, without further ado, here's Jake. All right. Oh, man. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, I'm wearing my highly inappropriate in case of dishonored. Uh, that is inappropriate, but but abro- appropriate for this podcast. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's hilarious. I mean, it shouldn't be funny, but I understand it, especially and, and people who have, who have read this book will definitely uh, understand the shirt. Oh, man. Wild, wild. But uh, man, I've been looking forward to this. I know you have a hard out, so I'm going to keep my eye on the clock. So uh, don't worry about that. And uh, but I'm sure we could talk for a long time. You have had quite the interesting run you have had a more interesting run and i I have your book hey look at that oh awesome thank you thank you oh man but uh so for those i mean who haven't watched uh tokyo vice haven't read the book um man like i want to read the first line of this book for uh, before we kick it off uh and then we'll come come back to it um and here it is man from the Ten Thousand cigarettes and this is somebody talking here and says, uh, either erase the story or we'll erase you and maybe your family, but we'll do them first. So you learn your lesson before you die, walk away from the story and walk away from your job. And it'll be like, it never happened. Write the article. And there is nowhere in this country that we will not hunt you down. Understand that's pretty powerful, uh, beginning right there. Uh, but before we circle back to that, where did the interest in Japan come from, from growing up? How did you end up in college in Japan? And did you study Japanese culture or language before you went? What's that side of the story? Well, I'll give you the, the, the long version of the story. Yeah. Not that long. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, when I went to high school, I was kind of bullied. And, uh, you know, I talked to my dad who'd done the martial arts for years. And he says, like, I'm going to show you one move, son. He says, like, you know, you're going to have to stand up to the bully sometime. And, uh, then they'll leave you alone. So one day I went to school and, you know, I'd practiced like doing a front kick and I got behind the school bully after he'd like tripped me in class, which was kind of embarrassing. I'm like, okay, today's going to be the day. And, uh, I'm like, I'm not, there's, you know, I'm not going to win this fight fighting fair, but I've been picked on so long. I don't really care. So, uh, as we were filing out, I kicked him in the balls. And then as he was kneeling over, I smashed his head into the table and I think it hurt his nose or was bleeding from his nose. And I thought, okay, I'm probably going to be expelled, but you know, I, I'm sure they'll let me back to high school eventually. So the teacher took us aside and he said, you know, what just happened here? He said, you know, Jack and the guy's name was Jack. No offense to you, Jack. That's all right. um, and that was me, Jake. And he was like, what, what happened here? He said, you know, I see two possibilities is that, you know, friend Jack tripped here and he needs to go to the nurse's office and, and uh, get that fixed, or um, you kicked him and hit him, in which case he needs to go to the nurse's office and you're going to be expelled. 
but then everyone will know that the skinny Jewish kid beat the shit out of you, Jack. So what is it going to be? And Jack was like, uh, I tripped. And so I was like, you know, secretly going, all right. But the teacher pulled me aside and he was like, you know, you cannot solve your problems through anger and you have anger issues and he's stronger than you and he's going to come for you someday. Um, so you should take a martial art to learn to discipline yourself and deal with your anger better. And he gave me the name of a karate school. And I said, uh, do I really have to go? And he said, if you don't go, um, you'll be expelled. And I said, okay, I'm going. And so from there, I developed an interest in karate, which is a traditional Japanese martial art. And I did that for years. Um, and I liked it. I mean, and I, my teacher grew up in Okinawa. And I found, you know, the, the ideas of Japanese culture and the, the strangeness of the culture, or the, you know, the emphasis on respect and reciprocity um, to be so interesting. And then I, when I started looking at the language, it was like such so bizarre because the verbs come at the end. It's nothing like English. Um, and it can be so vague. Um, if you want to threaten someone without threatening them, Japanese is the best language in the world because it doesn't have to have an I or you or a he or a she or a we. Interesting. You know, everything can be implied so well huh. without actually directly saying it, which is a great, great skill if you're a Yakuza and you want to threaten someone, but not in a way that the police can arrest you. Yeah. Um, and so when I got a chance to go to Japan, I took it. Um, I was at the University of Missouri, an exchange program. And I was there for about three months when I ended up um, through a chance encounter teaching English to a um, Zen Buddhist priest who then offered me a place in the temple to stay since I was a student and I was interested in the culture. Um, as long as I kept my hair short and I didn't bring girls into the room. And then I showed up at 6 a.m. for Zazen every Sunday. Um, and sometimes helped out at funerals. And then after about a year, I was like, yeah, I'm, 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 I love Japan. I'm going to stay here. Wow. Did you have a, an aptitude for languages in general before that? Or was it just straight English to now immersion in Japanese? I, I have no aptitude. I was the worst in my class. I, all I had going for me was this uh, ability to fail over and over again without being bothered by it. I just kept hammering at it. Um, wow. In, in those days, it was like, uh, I don't know if that's how they how they train people now. It was a kind of the Russian method where you would have these sentence pattern drills and you would drill over and over and over and over, yeah. like, you know, exchanging words. I mean, you know, three or four hours in the language lab, and I did that every day. And then the written language was a nightmare, but, you know, uh, because they have three syllabaries and these, these uh, kanji characters, which they adopted from Chinese, but then gave their own pronunciation and kept some of the Chinese pronunciation. So... When the Jesuits called it the devil's language, I, I kind of <laughs> see where they're coming from. No kidding. So this exchange program, it was uh, it was a, a semester and then you just stayed or did you come back and then return? It, it was a year. And then okay. I asked for an extension. And then after two years there, I was like, you know, um, I, I, you know, I also had I'd also deferred from going to New York University in their um, in their theater department. And oh. I was like, you know, I'm not I'm not interested in theater anymore. And, yeah. you know, I'm. And I'm not interested in being an actor, but I don't have any emotional memory. Um, mm. I'm like, I would rather live my life first um, before mm. doing those things. And so I, I said, I'm, I transferred to the university and uh, I never regretted it. No kidding. So where did you start? Where did you get the idea that uh, you could, could, could be a reporter or wanted to be a reporter in Japan? And then at what point did you realize that you would be the first one if you were hired by this newspaper? Oh, well. You know, as as time went on, I discovered that I had a knack for the written language. It made sense to me. I mean, mm. it was just like one day it was kind of, uh, I guess, kind of like a satori, like an enlightenment. Like, oh, I understand mm. the structure of this language. Now, it, you know, it makes sense to me. Mm. Um, 
And then things picked up really well. So I started writing in Japanese and I read voraciously. I know that you're an, you're an avid reader. You read a ton of things since the time you were young. And it's the same with me. I mean, I love to read. Um, I probably read a lot of the same stuff that you did growing up. Um, and then, you know, I, I started reading Japanese. I started reading comic books because that was helpful. And mm -hmm. um, comic books have sort of the pronunciation of the, of the kanji characters next to them. So you could sort of through osmosis uh, okay. learn that. And then writing for the school newspaper in Japanese, um, you know, and I had an editor who was just like, mark my, my text stuff and be like, rewrite it. And I'd rewrite it. Uh, and then I, I thought, you know, newspapers in Japan are very different than the way are in the United States. Mm -hmm. Mostly they're national newspapers with local editions. So kind of think of like mm -hmm. sort of USA Today with an office all over the country Got where it. you would have two pages of local news. Mm -hmm. So then they have these giant exams. And you can study for the exams. I mean, there are past tests. You know, there are past tests. You know what's going to be on them. You know what the structure is. And I and I had a year of school left, um, and I already had a job lined up at Sony. And I'm like, you know, I'm I'm going to see how I do on these exams because my friends are taking them. Mm -hmm. You know, what's the worst that could happen? So I really didn't think that I'd get hired. Wow. It was only after taking the test for the Omiri Shimbun, which is still the world's largest newspaper, wow. and you know. Um, you know, sitting down and finishing it. And then I did miss a page, but I still felt like I'd gotten most of it right. And that uh, the essay topic was foreigners, like foreign. And, and you know, that's a great, easy one to write about. <laughs> Softball for you. I, yeah. am, I, I am. I'm a foreigner, right? <laughs> um, so uh, I, you know, I have a new, unique perspective on that. And, uh, you know, after interview, after interview, um, you know, when uh, when I finally got that call, I was waiting at home one day and the phone rang. Um, and you really had to be by your phone because there were no cell phones. Yeah. Um, I thought, oh, you know, I may have this job. And as soon as they offered to me, I took it. Um, I just didn't think that I would end up spending the most of my first five years on the police beat. Yes, you had no idea what you were going to go into. I mean, I love the way you describe it in the book. And then in the show, I thought they did a great job as well in that first episode, showing you in there in the suit and everybody else in the suit and your head's up first and their heads are still down. Like, I thought that was uh, that was really, really clever and really cool uh, way to show this visually. Oh, oh I, I got I got chills watching that. Yeah. You know? um, and and Michael Mann, who is, you know, you who you would like, I'm sure if you haven't met him is, you know, is very meticulous. And heard. he wanted to know every single detail of what that room was like, how I felt, what what the scene was, what was going through my mind. We, we talked about it for hours and I thought, wow, he has recreated, a, you know, it's like watching your life with somebody else playing you for, for that second. That's so wild. You know, I was going to save it till the end, but um, how did you meet Michael Mann? Did he find the book first and read it and contact or how did that that work out? Um, John Lesher, who was on this project for years, he used to be the head of Paramount, mm. um, and has made some really good movies. Mm -hmm. Um, he reached out to Michael Mann. And then when Michael Mann was on board, I met him several times in Tokyo and we, we talked and, uh, you know, he, he really likes to immerse actors in that world. So, um, I did Aikido with the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department the entire time I was on that beat. Mm -hmm. I mean, they could kick the shit out of me because you need the orders and Cops don't really like each other. I mean, <laughs> one of the teachers was nice to me, but, you know, yeah. sometimes I would, it was just kind of like, ah, you know, take, take that for that terrible article the other day. You know, and I'm thinking I didn't even write it, but, um, <laughs> um, I, you know, and so he wanted uh, Ansel to experience um, what it was like to do the particular style of Aikido that the mm -hmm. Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department does. And so, you know, I found him a teacher and uh, he was good. 
and the, and the teacher taught Ansel a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. It shows it in there. You know, some of those falls I'm like, Oh, you know, as I get older, just watching falls looks, uh, it hurts sometimes. Um, but, uh, how, how did, I didn't realize that, uh, the newspaper you work for is the, was the largest in the world. How, how does, how does it become the largest newspaper in the world? So the Yomiri Shimbu, which has at its peak had 10 million readers a day also has a baseball team that everybody loves the Yomiri uh-huh. Giants. They have an amusement park. They, they used to have a travel agency. It's so monolithic. Huh. And at a time when everybody was into baseball and when everybody was sort of taught that, you know, to be an informed, intelligent citizen, you need to read the newspaper every day. You need to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. That Theo Muti, you know, managed to parlay that into, um, you know, tremendous sales um, and nationwide penetration. So 10 million, that's a lot of readers. No kidding. So it's real. So it is regional. Uh, it's not to, uh, to Japanese people all over the world. That's not what makes it the largest newspaper no. in the world. It's just focused on no. uh, Japan readership. Yeah. And, and, uh, it does, it did have a very big international division at one time. So there a lot yeah. of Japanese uh, reporters from the overseas. Um, it was, it was an interesting place to work and I was blessed with some really good, um, supervisors over the years. Yeah. Now, your first day there uh, in the show is really is really interesting. But then in here, when you talk about the, uh, well, there's a few things. Uh, one is getting that beat, and I didn't realize that uh, that you really had no idea what you were going into until you just mentioned it here. Like you didn't know that your first day you were going to be assigned to this crime beat, and that one of the funny things in here is the perch the purse snatching section like that was like a thing uh like you know there was you know uh well we can talk about the murder or, or not murder uh as well but all the other crimes and then purse snatching is like still a still a thing that stood out to you uh you know there were stories that get repeated like again and again and you just think you know after a time you just sort of like know the know the pattern yeah um, including there are panty thieves always have been panty thieves it's like a perennial story and you know then the question you need to ask is like, how do they sort the panties? Did they store them? Did they have a preference for lace? Were they color coded? Were there particular sizes? You know, just to add some flavor to the story. Oh man, crazy! I mean, it's what what an experience. And you had a you had quite a run there. Um, and before I get to, I'm not I'm not going to uh, butcher the name. Uh, Tadamasa Goto is that how you? Yeah. Uh, and the liver, right. liver transplant and the FBI and the whole, the whole thing there, which is in- incredible. Um, but you put in your time and you're doing this crime beat, um, and you find out there's no, no vacation days. I really liked <laughs> that part in here. I thought that was, that was funny as well. But, um, your first murder, like, what was that like going to your, to the scene of a, of a first murder? Uh, you know, it was really strange. Cause you, you know, um, it wasn't as strange as it might think. My father is a um, the county coroner, or was the county coroner for years and years and years. So, I mean, I've always heard about it, and occasionally, you know, I would be dragged to the scene with him, which I always found interesting. Mm. So, I, I kind of knew what the routine was, right? But you know, it's the first time you're you're there and you're asking people your questions. You got your little business card in your suit, and you're trying to figure out what happened. Um, and uh, everybody's running around and there's all the other reporters and you have your armband on and you're like, well, you know, what's what's going on here? You know, what yeah. what happened? Who killed this person? Why was it? Why was it there? What would be the motivation? And you, you know, you're trying to think about it and you're talking to the cops who, who obviously know more than they're telling you, you're trying to figure out how to read what they're what they're not saying. Yeah. Um, Which is a lot, right? It was, yeah, it's a lot. I, they're, mean, they're, they're not, I mean, they're not uh, saying a lot. 
It seems like they're giving you that, that thing you talked about earlier that uh, you have to kind of infer certain things or not infer certain things and just write what they tell you. And then the murder not being a murder unless there's a witness, all of these things that you're picking up on the fly. Yeah. Um, you know, after a while you learn, you know, you know, it took me a while to realize that this because the Japan Civil Servants Act makes it a crime to reveal um, information about an ongoing case. Mm. Any cop who talks to you on the record uh, as a, is at risk of losing their job or going mm. to jail. So you can't quote them. You know, uh, you know, it's always according to police sources or according to the Shibuya police station. You know, like how can a police station talk? But it's like very rarely do you put someone's name to it. Yeah. Um, and and you know, and because that there's this sort of uh, what Japanese call tatemai, sort of like the the surface appearance, the way things are supposed to be versus how they really are. Okay. When you're talking to the cops after hours, you you have to be drinking and you have to get dead drunk. And the reason <laughs> that you get dead drunk is because they can say, I don't remember saying anything. Or we were just drinking. We weren't discussing business. And because that is the pretext, you cannot take notes. Interesting. So you're drinking with this cop. I used to this guy. There was a great cop in, uh, on the organized crime squad in the north section of Saitama. Really liked him. Silver-haired guy. Um, Isobe. And I used to go to his house, and it would be like, we'd start with a beer because everybody starts with a beer. Mm. Then we'd hit sake. Then he would have me some try some wine. And then um, if it was winter, he'd be like, okay, one for the road. And I have a shot of Japanese whiskey, which I've come to like mm -hmm. over the years. And so the, the joy of this job is that you got to, you have like a, a car, a company car that would wait for you because they don't want you driving home drunk, right? Uh. That's bad image. And uh, uh, so everything that's been said, you have to write that down before you forget. So uh. I have these, I still have these stacks of notebooks. And it's like the first three or four pages are completely legible. But by like, you have time to get this seven, page seven, it's like, like a lot. Oh, geez. Yeah. It seems like in here, I'm like, okay, there's a lot of drinking going on, a lot of cigarettes, smoking cigarettes going on. Not a lot of sleep happening because you have deadlines. You have to get this background. You have to get all these things that you're getting out late at night with these guys. They're going to get sleep, but then you have to go write this story. And, uh, did you have to go back for a while? You had to go back to, to work to write that and not do it from home. Or how did you get all this stuff down? Uh, in the early days, you had to, you had to go back to the office and write it mm. up as best you could. You know, and, and it depends on what time of the day is because the newspaper has an evening edition. Mm. So you have literally six deadlines a day. Um, morning, you know, for the, for the evening edition, you've got three deadlines. You've got three deadlines for the morning edition. Mm. Um, and sometimes they'll extend it if it's a big story. I mean, I, I, you know, it was kind of exciting. Uh, I, you know, I, I like that part. But yeah. uh, the sleep deprivation for the first year, two years was really it really took a toll on me after a while. Oh yeah. When, when, do you, when do you sleep? <laughs> right. I was like, when is he sleep? Like grabbing cat naps for the first, like, you know, all these years. Um, but there was a story about your first scoop and I found it interesting that it was a pickpocket type story that you really went oh. all in on. How is, how did that one come about? Oh, so I, I knew that they, so, you know, one of the things you do is you go around, you chat up the cops and you're, uh, they used to have a railroad police department, which they, which they outsource to uh, civilians now. Um, and, you know, and it's like a neglected department. Nobody pays attention to them. So I was like, you got anything going? You know, got anything interesting going? Like, yeah, we caught this pickpocket. It was like, you know, been doing this professionally for like two or three years. And he's got a really good MO. Um, shows up in a suit, you know, perfectly timed. Uh, told his family's going to work. He must have, you know, pickpocketed, you know, hundreds of people. We're probably only going to be able to, you know, prosecute him for three or four. 
Um, but it's such a professional. It's a rarity in this thing to see someone who actually makes a living pickpocketing people. Huh. Um, and, you know, I went to the head of the, the detective division and I was like, hey, you know, Fujisan, give me this story. You know, it's a good, it's a good story. And, he, and the, 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 the nature of the police is they don't want to give a scoop to anybody because then all the other journalists whine and complain. Um, yeah. So uh, the one time I, I started bringing donuts to the cops, the Japanese cops don't eat donuts, but I told them that, you know, in America, American cops eat donuts. This is, a, this is an American thing. So, you know, uh, one of the police stations, I thought that was pretty funny. So I'd come by and bring donuts and they let me sit there and have coffee with them. And uh, I was taking a photo of them, to, you know, to send, you know, to send back to my father, which was true. Mm. But I noticed on the wall that they had this, you know, a, a wanted poster for this guy who'd been robbing all these um, kind of department stores and hardware stores along one big major road. And there hadn't been any announcement about it. So um, I thought, you know, this is a great story. So I went to the had detectives and I said, you know, I would really like to write the pickpocket story, but if you're not going to get right, let me write the pickpocket story. I want to write this story about this guy who has been um, robbing all these stores. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you can't write that up. You can't write that up. Like our investigation will be, will be crushed. We won't catch the guy. And I'm like, mm -hmm. well, you know, it's a matter of, it's a matter of public interest. If I don't write the story and other people will be victimized. So mm -hmm. there we are. And you know, you have your job and I have my job. I have to turn in the story, like one story a day. Mm -hmm. And he was like, okay, if you don't write it, I'll give you the pickpocket story. And I said, I am, I am open to that possibility. There you go. So uh, now we want the blackmail <laughs> negotiation. That is a negotiation. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, and then at some point you witness a guy light himself on fire and you talk about these different manuals they have in Japan for certain things. Um, and there's one on suicide. Um, but you actually witnessed this one. Yeah, this was in Kawaguchi. I was at one fire. Um, you know, it turned out to be not much of a fire. And then I couldn't hear over the Musen. Musen is like the, the police, the fire band radio. Um, that there was another, you know, problem, like a, a fire about to break out. And it was an individual. And I was like, I don't understand what this is about. But yeah. I ran there. And I ran there as the, as the police and the fire department were trying to talk this guy from not lighting himself on fire. He was like covered and he'd already covered himself in kerosene, but, um, that did not work. And I mean, he just flamed up. It was like, it was like, you know, I don't even know how to describe it. It was like, you know, the kids called, said it was like a, seeing sort of a flaming walking snowman because yeah. I mean, there were a bunch of kids around watching. I don't think they had any idea how horrible that was. Yeah. Um, and you know, they didn't have, I don't, I didn't use a fire. They didn't use a fire hose on him because maybe it was kerosene, but they just grabbed these blankets out of the car and put them on top of him and tried to put him out. Um, but it was, it was terrifying. And, and it smelled like burnt pork. I couldn't eat like hot dogs for mm -hmm. weeks. Crazy that you saw that you saw that. Um, and then go into all those different, uh, different books that the Japanese have on how to do anything. Um, where do you start finding out about Yakuza? Was that like something that you heard when you first got there and people are talking about it the way they do in this country about uh, the Italian mob or whatever else? Is it kind of out there? Because they're, they're talking about some of these guys are actual celebrities. There's uh, oh. movies made about them. And if they don't like a movie about them, then bad things can happen to the director. Like, where do you start oh, oh, understanding what the Yakuza are? And then maybe a little bit of the history of the Yakuza as well for people who aren't familiar. Okay. Um, you know, there's the mythological history of the Yakuza as them being former samurais or former firefighters um, mm -hmm. from days gone. But let's just take it from after World War II. So basically, they were federations of street merchants 
and gamblers. Mm. Um, and in the chaos after World War II, um, the police were very limited in what they could do, especially with policing third-party nationals, which were the Taiwanese and the Koreans um, and the Chinese who had been brought to Japan as slave labor. I mean, mm. they were, they really were slave labor. Um, I think building this one giant underground headquarters where Japan was going to move um, the government offices when the Allies invaded, wow. uh, I think 1,500 Koreans died, which just worked to death. Some wow. of them shot. Um, but now that the U.S. has taken over, right, and the U.S. Uh, JHQ said, like, you can't, um, you can't arrest these people. Like, they are outside of your jurisdiction. Yeah. Like, we're going to look after them. Um, and they started running the black markets, and they also started terrorizing the people that terrorized them for years. So the Yakuza, not being restrained by anything, sort of took up the slack. Um, not only did they took up the slack, but they also started running the black markets. Um, and then they fell into some of the traditional patterns that uh, gambling fraternities have. Is you know you have the these sort of very male-oriented groups where you have a father figure and brothers. There's no women in the yakuza, um, and you swear loyalty to your oyabun, your father, um, and your brothers, and uh, you dedicate yourself to this organization. And to some extent, the organization takes care of you, gives you a job, and teaches you discipline and teaches you code. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the Yakuza grew very fast. It was, it was, you know, their masculine was appealing. They had money. Um, and they also had a sort of social contract with, with, with Japan that made, uh, made them more acceptable. And the rule is, and sometimes you can see they were written on the walls of the Yakuza offices, you can't steal, you can't rob, like physically take money from someone. You're not supposed to engage in fraud. Mm. You're not supposed to use or sell drugs. Of course, you can't rape um, or sexually assault people, um, and uh, you're not supposed to have excessive interaction with the authorities. Mm. And uh, because of that, street crime is low. And in, in areas where the Yakuza have their offices, man, you don't want to be purse snatching there. Mm. You're breaking into a house because before the police catch you, they'll break your legs. Um, so they prospered, and they were very much in your face. They are legal organizations before the anti-organized crime laws went on in the books in 1992, which is about the time I started working. They had offices. You know, you could see the Yamaguchi Gumi logo um, in various offices. And now they, they still have offices. You can go to the National Police Agency webpage and find the or you know the headquarters and addresses of the top 22 organizations. Um, and fan magazines have sadly faded away in like 2018, but. You know, you could buy, you could go off the newsstand and buy a magazine and have sort of a two or three pages of, you know, uh, a photo shoot of the Yakuza going of whichever group it is, the Yamaguchi the Inagawakai, coming in and out of their meeting, um, sometimes interviews with the, uh, with, 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 with former bosses or current bosses, comic books about their history and past battles, um, lots of penis enlargement ads in those magazines. I can't really <laughs> explain why that is, but. That's wild. Did they so did they morph from taking over, you know, black market industry after World War II and become more entrepreneurial as as time went on and you know, real estate, gambling, do they become how did they become I mean, they almost seem legitimate with offices up until you start working there and there's some new some new laws go on the books, but not too much changes, but do they have to adapt and morph? Um, and what was that like during your time? And did you see anything morphing during your time oh, in Japan? Yeah, yeah, you, you, could, you, could, you could definitely see it morphing. Um, one of the things is, right, you know, that um, with these new laws on the books, you couldn't display your colors, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Every organization has its emblem. So they all set up these front companies. 
Um, and 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 in in many ways, the traditional yakuza income was you had the businesses in your area, and every you paid protection money. Everybody paid protection money, and that was their source of revenue. And mm-hmm. if you paid protection money, they actually did did a job for you. Mm-hmm. If you had an unruly customer, um, they would come trounce them. Um, if someone didn't pay their bar tap, they would go collect the money for you. Huh. Um, uh, you know, you you got what you paid for. Actually, you'd probably get better than what you pay for a Japanese security service, like a commercial one now, to take care of your business, right? Um, if you're running something kind of illegal, they'd give you a heads up when the cops are going to make a raid. So, you know, that was their 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 business thing. But with the new laws on the books, they started going into construction. Um, they'd always ran the entertainment industry, so that didn't really change. Huh. Um, uh, they began doing more elaborate frauds. They set up uh, political organizations. Um, one one enterprising Yakuza group set up their a, a series of detective agencies in which they would kind of debate whether it was better to give the client the information they wanted or tell the client there was no problem and then blackmail the person that was being investigated. So wow. they had sort of two revenue streams, uh, the Toho Tante Jimusho. Um, they started using a network of hostesses and hostesses aren't necessarily prostitutes. They're kind of like um, uh, high paid escorts working at these various luxurious clubs with expensive booths for businessmen mm-hmm. flirt with the customers and sort of give them the girlfriend experience. But of course the customers also talk to them. So they, so the Yamaguchi Gumi, especially uh, Takumi Gumi began using like hostesses to collect information about upcoming business deals or mergers mm-hmm. and then doing insider trading. So then they got very entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. Not all of their businesses are illegal. I mean, some of these, yeah, cause uh, I, I had one friend from college who ended up in the Sumio Shikai bizarre tale who ended up running a front company for them that did so well that it was bought out by disney <laughs> and then and then then he said to his boss hey man i want to go legit and the boss was like all right more power to you and so he was working for disney for a while until someone ratted him out and he got fired no way that's so crazy so when you're doing these uh the crime beat when you're brand new you're learning uh kind of how things work at the newspaper learning the relationship with the uh, local police department kind of figuring it out um do you have any interaction with yakuza, yakuza then or does it take until you go i think you do a, little, a, a stint covering local politics and then move over to vice and like it, 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 is it, vice it, where you really go all in on yakuza side of the house or how did how did that work well, everybody gets an assignment, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, you specialize if you're on the police beat. Some people do fraud and white collar crime. That's that's prestigious. Mm. Homicides and, and violent crimes are the next most prestigious. Mm. And when I started at the bottom of the barrel was covering organized crime because it was considered boring. Really? You know, I, you know, it was considered like, oh, you know, the only time that's interesting is where the gang wars. But, you know, it was also a great time for me because it was neglected and, and the actors started moving into major crimes, complicated crimes. Uh, huge financial crimes. Okay. So I felt like I was in a, a good arena. But um, for me, and, and the reasons I never really understood, Ayakaza reached out to me, um, and that's in the TV series, almost exactly as it happened. Mm. Um, Ayakaza reached out to me, called the office where I worked, and said he wanted to talk to me. And he had this problem was that the um, the police, when they came to visit his office, and this is another thing that I'll have to explain, because in Japan, the relationships between the cops and the Yakuza used to be very cordial. Huh. You know, cops would come in. Everybody knew who everybody was. Sometimes they would even exchange, not only exchange business cards, but like, here's here's a list of the members on our team now. Okay. Okay, here's a list of the members on our team now. All right. Um, there was a shooting or a particular heinous crime. The cops would go cough up 
cough up someone to go to jail for this crime, and the Yakuza would provide. So <laughs> relations were cordial. So this guy, Kane Konaoya, who called me up, um, the, his problem was that the cops were coming to his office, but they were not drinking the green tea and the sweets that he put out for them. <laughs> so you're like, well, well, you know, so he's explaining to me, right? And I, I think this is the first Yakuza I ever met for a sit down, right? Okay. I'd been summoned. Now, you know, and honestly, to be honest, I was, you know, I, was, I wouldn't say I was scared shitless, but I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with this. Yeah. Like, I'm like, I'm not sure I want to go to Yakuza's office. So I called <laughs> the, yeah. But before I went, I called this detective, Detective uh, Chiaki Sakiuchi, who I had befriended um, on the beat, you know, I, by giving ice cream to his kids. But basically over time. That's a great story, too, about my, the ice cream. Uh, yeah, but it's true. And by becoming my mentor. Uh, and he was like, oh yeah, you know, Kaneko Naya is like, he's, you know, he's a, he's a good Yakuza. I mean, straight up, you know, as, as Yakuza go, <laughs> honorable fellow, like, go with my blessing. If anything goes wrong, give me a call. <laughs> so long story short, um, they're not drinking his tea. Um, they're making a point of refusing, you know, to even, you know, touch the sweets that he offered. Um, and it created this rumor that he was, had become a dog for the, for the cops. Um, dog as I think in, is Japanese fine for informant. You know, mm-hmm. he was a cop dog. Um, that you know that he become an informant for the cops, and he was so tight with them that he was giving them information more than he should. Information that hurt the organization. Um, that he'd been turned, um, and he felt that if he didn't know why this was happening, that his own men would kill him mm-hmm. because they suspected he was a traitor. Um, and as it turned out. Uh, the number three in the organization who wanted to sell meth to the local population because mm. it's a big money maker wanted to get rid of Conico was absolutely a damn it that they were not going to handle drugs or distribute drugs. Mm. And, and Conico's reasons for not selling drugs weren't only because, um, you know, he felt that it did damage to society um, and that it wasn't honorable for Yakuza too, but his boss, like the, the boss of bosses, Nakamura um, used to be a meth addict. So he's like, we start handling meth and meth is around and, you know, and he sees it, you know, he might start taking up the habit again. So he had two reasons not to do it. So when it became clear that the reasons uh, that the number three had been spreading these rumors that cops had been bought by um, Kaneko Naoya and that you should keep your distance from him, which would create suspicions when they acted like they didn't want to do anything associated with him, right? It's all reverse psychology. Hmm. Um, You know, it put him in this very terrible position where he might have been off by his own men. So... Uh, you know, the detective Sekusan, you know, got this information from, the, from his cops on the Saitama police. Yeah, there's a rumor that Kaneko Naoya has been buying and bribing cops. And actually, that information came from the number three in the organization. Mm. So he said, you know, you tell Kaneko what, what I told you, and he'll take care of it. Um, so, you know, Kaneko was extremely grateful. Um, and he said, you know, what can I do for you? And I'm like, I don't, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm like not in the business of helping you because, you know, it's because someone I trusted said that you deserve to know this information. I'm telling you, I don't want anything from you. Mm-hmm. He's like, you, you want some pussy? And I'm like, no, I don't want, I don't want pussy. And he's like, you know, we got some, you know, like we got some great clubs here. And I'm like, no, no, thanks. And he was like, uh, like, you like boys? And I'm like, no, I don't like boys. I'm, I'm, I just don't want those things from you. And he's like, what, what can I get you? What, what can I get you to repay you back? And I said, you know, I would like information. Like, I would love information because you have information. And and he said to me, and I never forget, he said, yeah, you know, you're right. We are in the information business, you and I. He says, you make, your, you make your living by finding out things that people don't want written, and you write it up, 
and you get rewarded for that. And I make my living by finding out things that people don't want the public to know and making sure that you don't do your job. <laughs> and we're just on different sides of the fence. Interesting. Man. At and this uh, point, are you in vice at this point when you're doing this? Or are you already assigned? At this, point, I, at this point, I am covering local, like three or four police stations. And the next year I was covering organized crime exclusively. Okay. And theft. And, uh, and he turned out to be a very good source because there's so many Yakuza factions, right? That, you know, if, if he can damage another faction, they're off to some, you know, uh, they're doing insider trading or they've taken out a bunch of bad loans and they're about to put a small bank out of business. Mm-hmm. You know, it serves his purposes for me to write them up. Right? Yeah. It does him good, right? Because it hurts his rivals. So, you know, he's happy to give me that information. And, and yeah, maybe that information is, you know, doing him some good, but I'm happy to take it because information isn't black or white or good or evil. It's just what it is. Yeah. Um, and is it, and where do you find out about uh, when you meet Cyclops and then you go and uh, find out about this liver transplant and you find out th- th- those, th- and then, uh, I mean, that, that's a crazy story, especially how it ends up and what, where, uh, uh, Godot is today. Uh, I don't know if he's still there today. Cause I'm not sure exactly when this was, you know, how, how many years have passed, but, um, he's, uh, he's still alive. Um, uh, he's got a new, he's got a new hobby, which is trying to revive dog fights in Shizuoka prefecture, which I find to be an appalling sport. Not Cause then he become a Zen Buddhist at some point And he became a Shingon Buddhist, priest, okay. right. But he's still running a fiefdom in Cambodia. Oh my. Um, doing lots of nasty things there. He's still on the United States blacklist, the OFAC list. Um, and, you know, uh, and when he comes into to Japan, he occasionally tries to revive dog fighting, which that's like his hobby now. Which yeah. I find making dogs fight each other um, sometimes to the death and betting on it to be a pretty appalling sport. But yeah. I like dogs. Yeah. Man. So, uh, how did you, this all come about when you found out about the liver transplant, UCLA, money laundering, Las oh. Vegas, FBI trying to get in? I mean, it made sense, like, why the FBI would help an organized crime person come to the United States for uh, a life-saving procedure. But then it didn't really work out the way that they <laughs> that they thought no. it would. They got played pretty good. No, the, F- the FBI got really screwed on that. Um, Jim Stern, who is one of my favorite uh, former special agents, uh, uh, I think I wrote I, I wrote a small little book about him on on Amazon called Operation Tropical Storm. Um, funny guy, and he was like, "Yeah, you know, get the information and then give them the deal." That's informant one hundred and one. Mm. They should have dangled the fucking liver over his head and been yeah. like, you know, you know, cough it up, go to or or no liver transplant for you. Right. Um, so, you know, my my the first time I heard this story. Um, I was working on this case about a guy named Kajiyama Susumu. And Kajiyama Susumu had created a network of loan sharking companies in Japan. Where And, and Japan has a serious problem with like these consumer loans and loan sharking companies. Um, yeah, people, it ties into the suicides, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it definitely ties into the suicides. Because some companies, the company president will put make them take out a life insurance policy in which he's the beneficiary. That is considered collateral, an asset of the company because... Hmm. In Japan, if you kill yourself, there's still a payoff. Mm. There's a number of years have to go by. But if someone commits suicide, you do get a payoff. Mm. It used to be one year. Uh, now it's like three or four years. Um, but this guy, Kajiyama, made you know, uh, close to a billion dollars. And some of that money he laundered in Las Vegas um, at the MGM Mirage and uh, 
other casinos. And when I was working on that story, uh, you know, someone casually mentioned this, you know, this Yakuza guy called Sidecops that, uh, uh, you know, go to the used to go to Las Vegas as well. And as a matter of fact, that, you know, he hadn't been back to the United States since he got a liver transplant at UCLA. And I was like, how could this guy get a liver transplant at UCLA? He was infamous. There's no way he could get through customs. I mean, I figured at the start of the story was that he must have bribed someone. And he must have bribed someone or mm. he'd gotten adopted by someone and changed his name. This is a thing you can do in Japan if you want to if you want to banish. You can mm. you can get someone older than you to adopt you and you can change your last name. Then your passport changes and you can sail through the U.S. Um, customs. But uh, that wasn't the case. And I kept on that story for years and years. Um, and then in 2007, um, there was this one cop at the Shimokitazawa at the Kitazawa police station who was downloading porn onto his uh, computer with a file exchange service called Winnie. And to download things, you have to upload things. So he was downloading all this tentacle squid porn, and he accidentally designated his upload folder as the entire database of the Metropolitan Police Department on the Yamaguchi Gumi, which was the organization that Goto was a part of, and a big section on Goto himself, including wow. his travel records. Oh, jeez! And when I went on, when I went on the net, um, as soon as I heard about it, I called a friend of mine who's much, much more adept at these things. And I'm like, dude, I need you to download this for me before it disappears. And uh, put it on a hard disk, which he did. Wow! Um, and going through that was like, you know, I mean, we're talking gigabytes of data. Uh, I think it took me weeks months to find yeah. the, the things that let me put it, put two and two together and realize that, okay, this guy got into the United States because the, because the Bureau let him get in. Um, the, the liver transplant and all that stuff was arranged at UCLA. The, the feds didn't have any part in that. Um, he, he negotiated that on his own. Um, and, you know, it's very clear to me if you actually read the UCLA's internal report, um, which I may publish someday on what happened that, that, um, there was no way he should have been bumped to the top of the line like that. Yeah. And, and not only did he get in, but three other Yakuza got liver transplants at the U, at UCLA, you know, jumping ahead of every other people of other people that definitely should have had them. I mean, these are scumbags. I mean, wow. responsible for, you know, death and murder and drugs and human trafficking. And the fact that they uh, were moved to the front of the line and the U.S. and U.S. citizens died who could have gotten those liver transplants is, is quite appalling. Wow. What do you think? They bought a, uh, they made some donations perhaps. Oh yeah. They made, uh, they made a lot of quote unquote donations. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, trackable at least to go to at least 200, $200,000. Yeah. Who do you, who do they think they made those to? Or do you have, do you know who they made those to? Uh, they made one to the UCLA. Um, uh, like in that, I think they set up a go to wing. You can actually see it photos of it. Um, no way. I, I think, the you know, they paid in, to the, to the hospital itself because you know the private citizens at least a hundred thousand, and I don't want to get myself uh, in trouble here um, in this litigious society, but I have a feeling that there may have been some substantial rewards that went to the surgeon who yeah. had a significant say in who got to go and who didn't get to go. But I don't know. Yeah, it's a possibility. Yeah, it seems. Yeah, man, that's wild, um, man. And then you decide to write about this even after being warned off and there's some, some, uh, the, the, the chapters in here on the sex industry are in, 
pretty eye-opening, uh, the whole culture there and then your sources and how you develop those sources and how you get information. A lot of late nights, uh, a lot of like a lot of alcohol, a lot of cigarettes. Um, but, uh, but th those are fascinating. But, uh, when did you decide to, to write, uh, to write the book and is it, uh, is it looking into human trafficking that really made you, I know you talk about that, about being the time when you start to get a little burned out on, uh, on what you're doing. Um, is that what spurred you to, to, to write the book and then, then move on from, from what you were doing there? Um, yeah, uh, I think we have a common friend who um, introduced us who was also working on this project for the State Department about um, human trafficking. Mm -hmm. uh, and they wanted what I would call not a victimology. You know, uh, the Bush administration um, really was down on human trafficking, which is, of course, you know, it's an appalling thing. And Japan was ambivalent. I think mm -hmm. they just didn't have any laws on the books. They didn't care. Um, and it was set up so that it was very favorable to human trafficking, which is why Japan was a huge transit point mm -hmm. and a huge destination point. So they wanted to know um, why well, that was, who was responsible, who was, who was, you know, who was corrupt, what organized crime roles played, what immigration offices were letting these people through, why wouldn't Japan actually put anything on the books? And so while I was working on that, um, a friend who was who was a prostitute and a source uh, started looking at a firm that turned out to have been one of Godo's front companies and she disappeared. Uh, hmm. So I don't know what happened to her. Um, I didn't know what happened to her at the time. Um, so I thought, you know, well, you know, I go to as an asshole um, and he's into human trafficking. And I have this story that I've never finished. And now would be the time because I have resources. I have time. Um, I'll tell you something. You know, when you're a reporter, you cannot pay for information. At least that was what I was taught. That was the Japanese way, the Japanese code. Right. But when you're working ostensibly for the State Department, you know, um, on a report, um, and you're an investigator, you can pay. Mm. Um, you just, you know, I just think they just don't want receipts. Right. And <laughs> you pay, if you pay crooks for information, it's much faster getting that information out of them. So that was good. And coupled with, uh, data leak, um, I decided to pursue that story of, uh, once and for all of his, how he got the, the liver transplant. But of yeah. course, uh, my publisher, my original Japanese publisher wasn't very careful. And when he got wind of it, um, put out a contract on me and then the national police department asked me to come in and explain what was happening. And then I was under police protection for a couple of years. Yeah. And was your um, family in this country also under protection? Is that no, 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 they were in, they were in the United States. I was here when it happened and when okay. I got a warning and uh, one of the cops, the national police agency who I knew from Saitama um, said to me, like, you know, you should, he said like, you, you need to, he took me aside and he said, look, whatever you're going to write about this guy, you need to write it now. I mean, that's what you do. You're a journalist, right? He, the only reason he has a reason to, to kill you is because it's embarrassing to him. Mm. Um, but once it's out, he has a whole world of problems that are not you, because we know that he sold out his buddies to get to get a visa to the United States. We know that mm. but they don't know that you write it up. You know, he's got no reason to deal with you. He has other problems. He says, you go home now. I think you can run away from this. He, you know, he'll just send someone local to, to take you out. And they'll probably take out your family too, because it's easier, hmm. you know, just blow up the building. That's, that's his modus operandi. It's wipe you out. And if he hires a foreigner to do it, it isn't even dishonorable. Hmm. So you need to stay here and get your shit together and get this story out. 
And man, I tried. I tried to get a Japanese publication to write it. I remember sitting in a hotel room, had everything written out for this one weekly magazine. And, you know, they sent me a fax of the of what it looked like edited and print. And then at uh, one in the morning, my editor said, hey, man, we, we they've just pulped the entire issue and they're taking your article out. Wow. Like, I was like, wow. And I, pulped means it's printed, ready to go, and they destroy it. Yeah, they destroyed it. Dang. Dang. Well, then how did you, how, and how did it work for the U.S. publisher? How did, what was that journey like? So, uh, let's see. Um, my father knew Howard, Rose, Howard Rosenberg at 60 Minutes because um, uh, you'll you love this story. Uh, I don't know. You won't love this story. But at the VA hospital in Columbia, Missouri, um, there was a nurse that was killing patients, probably killed 40 patients. Um, my father blew the whistle on it. Wow. Um, and uh, the VA tried to fire him because, you know, it's not shocking. You know, I hate to say that. <laughs> I, well, it was a shock to me, man. Yeah. Because, I mean, like you're doing the right thing and you're and, and they're and they're trying to screw you because you did the right thing. I mean, shouldn't people know? Don't you want to investigate this stuff? <laughs> anyway, uh, Howard Rosenberg had done that story. And, mm. uh, uh, my, you know, I told my dad what was going on. And he said, you need to talk to Howard. And Howard put me in touch with um, John Pomfret at the Washington Post. Mm. And he said, this is a hell of a story. Can we get verification? So I sent him everything I had. And then he got someone in the bureau to confirm it. They ran the story. And then the LA Times was in the wings waiting. Because um, I was figuring, you know, you you know, one story isn't going to be enough to knock this guy off. You're going to really have to do it twice. Uh, so in the, U, in the Washington Post article, the name UCLA doesn't appear. Then it does okay. appear in the Los Angeles Times article. Okay. Um, and then the Japanese media did this thing, which which is really chicken shit, but they do this often when they don't want to deal with something um, that's uh, that's you know that's possibly dangerous. Right? Is they reported that the L.A. Times reported that one of Japan's most notorious gangsters had made a deal with the FBI to get in the United States and to got a liver transplant, and several other gangsters had had done it, and it was never their own. Like it was never like you know. We followed up this story, investigated. It was like, oh, the LA Times wrote this, so you can't blame us. We're just passing on what someone else said. Uh-huh. Right. I was like, wow, that's kind of amazing. But um, that and uh, that and an article about him having a huge party with celebrities, which I also quietly helped get into print. I <laughs> got him kicked out of the got him kicked out of the Yamaguchi Gumi, and uh, it was a happy day for me. I, I think. He was kicked out of the Yamaguchi Gumi you know, on October 14, 2008, and my mm. book came out on October 14, 2009, which was quite wow. a happy day for me. Wow, that's amazing. And then uh, do you have any regrets from that, uh, from that time? Like, would you, if you would, could go back, would you do things differently, and specifically um, dealing with Helena? Um, and then what happened to her? Like, did you ever confirm that that was her with the, the photos that you were, were shown of the uh, um, murdered and mutilated person? Years later, um, I got a call um, from someone who sounded very much like her, mm. and it was a very short call. And it was oh. like, "I read your book, and I am sorry that you worried so much." Oh wow! Um, and he said, "But I have, you know, I've started a new life, and I needed to get out of there for many reasons, you know." And she's la- and, and the, the person laughed. He said, "You're you're part of the reason I needed to get out of there, but don't hold it against you." And uh, and hung up. No and, way. Uh, and that was it. I'm That's like, wild. Uh, when did you I get did, that call? I got that call in 2014. No kidding. So all that time you just didn't know 
Did you suspect that she was still alive? Because it's, it's hard to tell in here because obviously you're looking at photos and you can't really but, tell. You know, and what did you think? I, 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 you know, I, I knew that um, the Yakuza are crazy, man. I mean, mm. you want to talk about conspiracy theory, theory love, love on people. I mean, these people really do love the theory. So there were some of these people really thought that because uh, I'm Jewish and I got myself into this big, but I really was must be in the Mossad, right? I must be a spy. No one could get that job without, you know, external help. So I always thought maybe, you know, maybe they were trying to manipulate me to whack Goto because God knows everybody hated him. I mean, if you wanted to make a Japanese sitcom, like sort of a, uh, a Yakuza version of Everybody Loves Raymond, you can make one called Everybody Hates Goto. <laughs> everybody hated him. His mistresses hated him. His, his subordinates hated him. Another Yakuza boss hated him. Um, so I, I, I mean, I hoped, you know, you hoped, right, that things aren't as bad as you think. Yeah. Um, and so when I got that call in 2014, I felt tremendously relieved. I would be, it would be nice if uh, it was not an unlisted number. Um, uh, it would have been nice to get, to get an email or something. But right. uh, I also understand that, you know, um, New life. people who have been prostitutes and have been, in, you know, and been traffic victims, like they, they don't tell their partners. I mean, uh, you see, some of these women have come back to Japan and it's like they're happily married. They got a kid. And, you know, I realized that their husband mm. has no fucking idea what they experienced in Japan. Wow. No idea. And it's like, you know, uh, everybody has the right to be for I think everybody has the right to have their past forgotten. Yeah. And I don't want to screw up somebody's present life by digging into uh, by bringing up their past life. So um, I I'm. I felt that, that was definitely her yeah. and that uh, she's alive and doing so well. And that made Good me feel tremendously relieved. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Uh, I mean, after that time, after the book was published, did you stay uh, working, um, did you do some State Department work or do some things with human trafficking or what was your, what was, those, what was that next decade like for you? Well, well, uh, that, that is going to be covered in uh, Tokyo Private Eye coming out in 2020. Nice. And that's, is, that's the book <laughs> coming out and the season, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, it's the... Tokyo Vice season two is just continuing from the book. Okay. Tokyo Private Eye sort of picks up where the book left off. And it, it also sort of describes how I finally got, got Goto out of my life or, or put him in a position where I don't worry about him anymore, um, which was nice. Uh, really, it's really nice not to feel like you're, you're, you know, that there's sort of a sword hanging over your head um, literally. all the time. Yeah. Yeah, literally. Well, you know. Uh, I mean, they are, the knife is the preferred weapon of the actors yeah. of these days because yeah. gun, gun regulations in Japan are, are very severe. Um, what was the question? I lost myself here. Uh, just talking about the, uh, the the next steps for you, that decade after this oh, book oh, is published oh, oh, oh. and oh. human trafficking and what you've done uh, in this decade so, since the book came out. So since the book came out, um, one is I can't really say I was working for the State Department because the State Department sponsored the project they sent it to an NGO, which hired me through another company in D.C. You know the guy I'm talking about. Okay. So there was, you know, a, a level of separation because the State Department does not want to be uh, giving money to criminals for information, right? Got it. Um, so, you know, I'm at the very bottom of the food chain. But it was funny because I was talking directly to the State Department at the time I was doing it. And, and people understand that. You know, I mean, I was meeting with the ambassador on combating human trafficking while doing this. Mm -hmm. uh, but I finished that up, and then there was the nuclear disaster in um, Japan uh, in on in March 2011, and uh, and uh, suddenly, you know, I I've been doing a little bit of writing, but suddenly I was like back writing full time. Um, 
And that was a tremendously eye-opening experience for me because, you know, I always considered the worst thing in Japan was the Yakuza. But when I realized how Tokyo Electric Power Company Corporation had let this accident happen, had ignored all the warnings that could have prevented it from happening and how the Japanese government was complicit in not only ignoring those, but in the cover-up afterwards, um, that I felt, you know, I felt like, well, it's time to go back to serious journalism. Um, and... Uh, I was also, because the problem with journalism is it doesn't pay very well. I was working <laughs> for the Daily Beast. Um, I was working for the Daily Beast and, and the Atlantic and writing for other people. But, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it, it's barely, you can barely get by it. So I started supplementing my income by doing um, due diligence mm. for companies that, um, for U.S. firms and some Japanese firms that had a problem with uh, investing in companies that the Yakuza run mm. or companies that were fraudulent. Um, and so basically my, my real job became being a private investigator looking at firms, crooked firms and financial uh, fraud run by antisocial forces, including the Yakuza. And that paid for my hobby of journalism. Okay. So that's going to be, that's book. That's the next book coming out next yeah, year. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Got it. And then when did the, uh, Bitcoin, um, come into, come into play and you're researching into that and the pay the devil in Bitcoin. What's the, what's that all about? Oh, oh, well, pay the devil in Bitcoin is an abbreviated version of, of much longer book that is only in French. You will laugh at this, but I, I sell more books, um, anywhere in the world than I do in France. So I've written, hey, two why of, is that only a bit? I don't, you know, the French. Oh, one of the reasons is uh, are you, okay. I've seen the redactions in your, in your, <laughs> yeah. uh, in your manuscript. American publishers are so goddamn lawyerly that, mm. you know, that at one point I wrote a history of the Yakuza after the second world war. I interviewed all these Yakuza and they were like, can you go back and get release forms from them? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, are you, are you out of your, are you out of your goddamn mind? No. <laughs> can no. you? <laughs> no, I'm like, I'm not going to even try. That's not how journalism works. If you don't say it's off the record, it's on the record. And and to go back to these guys and let them think about it, you know, they're, they're probably going to get very upset. You don't, you don't want to let them rethink this. Huh. Um, so, but the French publishers like, you know, like, you know, like you're a journalist, you, you know, you've done this your whole life. Like, you know, we don't need to fact check your manuscript. We don't even have a lawyer look at it. And I'm like, great. I'll publish with you. No kidding. You know, if you just, you know, if you want to be read. If the translation of it is good, and you have to remember all the, what, everything that was originally said in Japanese in the first place. So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I like to be read. And the French love Japan. They love true crime books. Okay. Um, and so it's been a wonder. And the publisher I started with was like literally three people. Um, uh, my first book became basically the, how they launched their company and wow. they're still around. So I sold my soul for Bitcoins. Third book is about... The, you know, the history of Bitcoin, including is the, the creator Satoshi Nakamoto, really Japanese. Um, and uh, and about this one Bitcoin exchange that used to be the largest one in the world called Mt. Gox. Huh. It lost $500 million worth of Bitcoins were hacked out of it in 2014. And the geeky CEO, Mark Karpolis, was considered the criminal by the Japanese police. And I thought he was probably the person responsible at first when I began working on this. But after following the story for the Daily Beast for years and years and years, I began to suspect that this guy might actually be innocent, that there might, the criminal might be someone else. Mm -hmm. Even though the Japanese police had arrested him and arrested him, oh, kept him in jail for a year, um, uh, you know, and then, you know, one 
one night around 2016, I was drinking with a special agent from the IRS who'd come to Japan. And I, I knew that he had talked to Karpolis because uh, at one point in time, when Karpolis was in jail, I was watching his cats. And he had all the business cards with the people who, you know, you know, before he went to jail on his desk. And one of them was this IRS agent. Um, you know, I, so I sent out a bunch of mails to these people saying, hey, you know, I'm like, what are you talking to Karpolis about? Like, uh, want to talk to me? So he looked me up and and as we were sitting there, you know, drinking and drinking beer and sweating because it was really hot that summer in this Japanese pub, um, uh, you know, I realized, oh, yeah, wait a second. This guy is actually after the person who um, really stole the money. Like he knows who it is. Yeah. And uh, and I suspected this Russian guy. So I was like, yeah, so, you know, like, so what are you in Japan for? Is this part of your case against the Russian? And he didn't bad an eye. He was just kind of, mm, yeah. And I'm like, you know, so why are you calling me up? Um, and he was like, well, I went to the Japanese police and I said, I would really like to have the database from Mount Gox, which I know that you have, mm. because it would help us catch, catch this Russian hacker who's been knocking over Bitcoin exchanges all over the world. International criminal money's going to Russia. Um, and the Japanese police told me to fuck off. Mm. And I said, well, of course, they're going to tell you to fuck off because they arrested one guy trying to convict him for it. And if you arrest the actual culprit, they look stupid. Mm. So why would they help you? Why would the prosecutors help you? Um, and he said, I kind of get it. I'm kind of surprised. Um, and, I, and he said, can you get me the database? And I said, I might be able to get you the database because I know his lawyer mm. and I know Mark, um, but you got to promise me something. If I get you the database and you catch the criminal, you have to put in a press release that he's also responsible for Mount Gox because that'll help Carpolis get off. Um, it might even get him an innocent verdict in Japan. And you know the odds of getting innocent in Japan once you're found indicted are 1% or less. Mm. If you're indicted for a crime in Japan, there's a 99% conviction rate. Wow. Um, so, uh, and then I asked for a 24-hour lead before they made the arrest. And he was like, well... I will put in the press release what you want because yeah, he's an innocent guy, but giving you a 24 hour heads up. Fuck you. That's never going to happen. I mean, like you're out of your mind. Uh, I'll give you 12 hours before we make the announcement. Um, so I went to San Francisco on my own dollar. I took the database with me, went to the FBI offices. The person who's supposed to meet me, um, had forgotten it was a national holiday. There's nobody there. Oh, geez. I spent the rest of the day, uh, like hours exchanging emails with these special <laughs> agents, trying to find someone yeah. who could take the take the hard disk because you have to have someone there and sign it so you have uh, the chain of evidences right there, right? You understand how that works. Yeah. And, and finally, there was a uh, this this one guy who was, I think, doing a surveillance of some strip club in in San Francisco, and that's where we met at the strip club outside. We walked wow. in, had a beer, and then gave him the the database. And uh, sure enough, they caught Vinik, the Russian. Uh, about a year later, and Karpolis was actually found not guilty on the two major counts in his case, and guilty on a minor count, and he went free. That so was a happy ending. Probably, probably the only time that I've you know uh, contributed to someone, an innocent man. <laughs> yeah, got it, got it. Oh man, well I'm looking at the clock, so I know you got to go, but I have a, a couple more I, I, things. And one, we, we got we, we got 20 more minutes, man. So I can stretch it. Gotcha. And, uh, so you talk about, um, the number of people who go missing in Japan. Um, mm -hmm. it's a pretty large number and they just disappear. Um, 
So is that the human trafficking part? Where are they going? Where are they disappearing to? And then kind of associated with that, there was one, like two sentences in this book that stood out to me just because of things that I'm interested in. Um, and that is North Korea kidnapping Japanese and bringing them to North Korea. Um, and you don't go into it too much in, in the book, but you mention it in here. So, um, about that North Korea kidnapping Japanese citizens, one off the beach. Uh, what is that about? And then also the, the astronomical number of people who go missing in Japan. Well, okay. They're not all going to North Korea. No, no. Every year. So this is um, for for Campsite Media, which may be a rival to your organization. But anyway, I'm dropping the name there. Um, I'm doing a show called uh, Gone with the Gods. Um, I've been doing it for, for months because I've always been interested in this topic. Every year, 80,000 people reported missing in Japan. And that is actually probably, according to um, Yanagi, this detective I know from Tochigi Prefecture, probably only a third of the number that go missing because it's limited to family members and spouses. Mm. So you cannot file a missing persons report if your best buddy goes missing. Um, they don't get listed as a missing person. Okay. Only if they're like your brother, your sister, or your wife, or your husband. Um, and it turns out, as we've been investigating this and really looking into it, is of that 80,000, there's a large number of people now who are senile, and they just wander off. I mean, Japan's a really aging society. Hmm. So you have all these people with dementia who are just like sort of leave home and they can't find their way back home. Sometimes they get in accidents. Um, sometimes they wind up in hospitals where they take care of them, even though they don't know who they are. Hmm. Um, it's crazy. That's one part of it. A lot of people commit suicide and they uh, don't leave anything behind. So you can't identify the bodies. Um, people get killed um, and buried. Um, People run from the Yakuza and people run into the Yakuza, meaning like not only are you in trouble with the Yakuza for loans or whatever, or, you're, or you've been in the Yakuza life and you want to get the hell out of there mm -hmm. and you stole the money from the organization, um, but you, you know, you, you've committed a crime and are, you're, you've embarrassed yourself beyond belief and you go into the Yakuza and you take on a new name and a new identity. Okay. Um, so it's, you know, there's not one thing, but one of the things that, that, you know, it's a very small part of it is that. Starting in the 1970s, the North Koreans kidnapped Japanese citizens to train spies, and they kidnapped nurses and doctors and nuclear scientists, and they dragged them to North Korea, they put them in a special area, and they used them to raise and train their spies and maybe even uh, assumed their identities. Um, uh, it is very well documented. I think in 2002, um, Prime Minister Koizumi went over to North Korea they finally admitted to it. They let some of them come home. Wow. I interviewed. I People interviewed, came home that had been gone for a decade or two. 20, 20 years, right? Um, I, I interviewed Hitomi Soga, um, who, who, had, who she and her mother had been kidnapped off the coast. She was a nurse. Jeez. Her mother, I think, was thrown overboard. I mean, you don't want to tell that to Hitomi-san. Um, and, uh, you know, and to actually to get in to do an interview with her because, you know, there were all these rules that they weren't supposed to be giving exclusive interviews. She told me like, you know, and her, she had an American husband who had been left in North Korea because she wanted to get back Charles Jenkins. So she was very happy to talk to me. So uh, she told me, just pretend to be one of Jenkins' relatives. So I showed up with my daughter like, on my side so no I could walk way. into the room and talk to her. Um, and I just interviewed the son of one of the abductees, uh, uh, not the son, the, the younger brother, of one of the abductees who, who, you know, who disappeared when he was nine. Um, North Korea is an evil place, man. And they were, 
you know, they're kidnapping Jeez. people. They've kid, they, they may have even kidnapped Americans, but they definitely were kidnapping Japanese people because they wanted to be able to send spies in there to blend in. Um, they also had this idea. One of the things that they have done over the years is they have mapped out all the nuclear power plants in Japan and their security flaws because you don't need to launch a nuclear missile in Japan when you have all these badly run nuclear power plants. As Fukushima should tell you that mm-hmm. you just need to knock out the power generators and you will set off an atomic bomb. Jeez. So part of that deal then with between Japan and North Korea is that the people that are being essentially repatriated, they cannot discuss what happened to them or that they were abducted. They can discuss they were abducted and, oh, they and, and, and all these things. There are a lot of people that are unaccounted for. Um, Yokota Megumi, who was one of the most famous abductees, she was very young and her family was very vocal about mm. her abduction. It was a very big deal when the, the government finally admitted that she had been abducted. Um, you know, uh, we're not certain that she's actually dead. The 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 evidence that they provided turned out to be bogus. They said, here are her bones. The DNA didn't match. Mm. So, you know, is North Korea still keeping some of these people as, co- as collateral, as hostages? Nobody knows. I mean, you can never believe anything that North Korea right. says. So, you know, there we are. Man, that is wild. And then it's gone with the gods. What is that? Is that a, is that, that's your next project or it's a project you're working on currently? Oh, it's a project I'm working on. I'm working on it with, um, with Shoko Plambeck, who was, uh, you know, a young journalist who, um, who, uh, you know, was actually making more money as a professional model than she was a journalist, but I kind of dragged her back. I'm like, Shoko, like, you know, you're bilingual, you're a journalist. This is an interesting topic. Um, she herself and her family had to flee to Japan because her, her, her father got involved with the Mexican cartels, which is a crazy story, but if you're going to hide somewhere, Japan's probably a safe place to hide. Um, so we're looking at how, why do people go missing? How do they go missing? Of course, there are manuals in Japan for missing and disappearing, telling you, you know, every step you need to do to become a new person. Wow. Um, and then the underlying narrative is my, my accountant, who we're calling a Morimoto, in 2018, disappeared with the money that I paid him to do my taxes and the money from many other firms, uh, clients at his accounting firm. Um, and we, I always curious about what happened to him and why he ran. And uh, we've been following <laughs> that story. And in, in order to do this, you know, and to track him better, we even spent three days at a private detective school getting certified and finding missing people, which, 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 which was just hilarious. No way. What do you think? He just took the money and ran and wanted to just start again somewhere else. <laughs> maybe as an um, accountant, maybe not. I, I can tell you this, uh, you know, he, he had some clients that are, were pretty scary that were paying a lot of money. Ah. Um, and, uh, uh, he isn't the nice guy that I thought he was. Interesting. Um, you might want to disappear without the money because maybe that's less incentive for people to come looking for you like you are. Yeah, well, uh, especially if you have Yakuza money or something like that, it seems like that's a pretty bold move to take some of that. Oh, even after he disappeared, he was caused mayhem, chaos and mayhem. It's it is interesting because I, I don't know where he went bad. I think he did get involved in uh, cryptocurrency and lost a lot of money. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's fun. I mean, it's interesting. It's really interesting, interesting to see all the ways that people vanish and why they vanish. Yeah. Yeah. When you go, do you go back to Japan still? Do you go back there? Um, oh, I, personally, I, professionally, I, I, you still live there. I live in Japan. I live in Japan. I work in Japan. I, uh, 
I came back because you know I haven't because of the pandemic. Uh, you couldn't leave Japan and go back for a long time. Oh, I see. I came back to see my parents. My son's off to college uh, next week. Um, my daughter is off to Amsterdam. Uh, we left the after before yesterday for study abroad. Um, oh, my daughter interned with me uh, for the summer, which was really nice because when the prime minister got assassinated. Um, the ex-prime minister got yeah. assassinated. I was in Hokkaido going to private detective school and I wow. called her up and her friend Himari and I'm like, like, pack your bags. You're going to Nara. Um, going to the police station, going to get some quotes. Uh, ex-prime minister's been assassinated. That's your story. And they're like, I have like, you have 30 minutes to pack your bags. And uh, wow. I think it was good for her. But yeah. She, she said- well, That's she a big one to me. cover. What, what is, uh, um, what, did you find out anything uh, that you weren't expecting when you started oh, looking yeah. into that? Oh yeah, okay. I mean- you know, there are things that sound so much like conspiracy theories that you, as soon as you begin saying them, people are like, ah, yeah. you can feel them rolling their eyes, right? Maybe not as much today, it, which makes it uh, a harder job as a novelist trying to, uh, you know, figure out things that 20, 10 years ago, people would have said, no way, science fiction. And today, you know, too much of a conspiracy theory. And today it's like actually real and accepted. But uh, so I understand where you're, where you're coming from. But uh, what did you what did you find out? Oh, OK, so. Let me say first that Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who ruled was Japan's longest-running prime minister, I do not like in any way. Uh, he was crooked. He was corrupt. He abused his power. Um, he made the Japanese bureaucracy um, lie and cover up for him, and people who should have uh, been punished went away with it. So I can't say that I was sad to see him bumped off, but nobody deserves a, a violent death um, for the level of crimes that he committed. But the person who did it did it um, – not because he has anything against Abe politically, but because Abe and mem many members of the Liberal Democratic Party, which are the ruling party of Japan, which have almost ruled it since the 1950s, mm -hmm. um, for like, you know, 50 years, um, were heavily connected to the Unification Church. When the Moonies, right? The same mm -hmm. people that bought the Washington Times. And I don't know if you know anything about the Moonies, but they're a pretty pernicious, nasty cult. Huh. And... Uh, he felt that this cult had ruined his life, that it, 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 had, it had bankrupted his family, it had driven his brother to suicide, um, and he decided that, in his mind, the only way to call attention to this problem and this, and this connection to the cult and the ruling party was to assassinate Prime Minister Abe, who was, um, and his grandfather, going back to his grandfather, were very well connected to the Unification Church. and that he needed to do it to save other people from the Unification Church's thing. I think he was actually on a suicide mission. I, I believe that he expected to be killed. So he assassinated the prime minister. This stuff comes up. I, everybody thought he was crazy, right? But, but because I have a really good memory, I remember reading an article in 2015 in this a magazine about Abbey's connection to the Unification Church as mm -hmm. well. You know, the, his motive doesn't justify it, but what he's saying isn't necessarily crazy. Okay. So I, I stood on that story and I wrote a long piece for the Daily Beast, which did really well. Um, but for me, that was the most surprising thing, is that the motives of this guy's wasn't politically motivated. It was to show the connection between the ruling party and this crazy cold out of North Korea, uh, not in North Korea, out of South Korea called the Unification Church. Um, and the result of it has been, Jack, has been that... Um, a kind of political upheaval in Japan that is huge. Huh. It is so huge that 80% of the Japanese public, um, well, it depends on which, maybe 60 to 80% of the Japanese public 
no longer wants to have a state funeral for former Prime Minister Abe because they're so offended about the ties that the, the ruling party has to this um, predatory cult. Wow. So, I mean, right? Wow. That's crazy. Man, wild. Oh, man. Well, I know you got a couple minutes. Uh, oh, thank you so much for doing this. You have a lot going on. You got the next book coming out, which uh, it sounds like it's done, the next one. So that's a, that's coming out next year. You got Gone with the Gods and Tokyo Vice season two. It's right now. Season one is on HBO Max. And uh, before you go, what was that experience like and how much uh, a, a part of all that filming were you? Um, it, it was it was a crazy, wonderful experience. Um, the, the nicest thing about this is that the showrunner. Right. And this is a term that I only knew recently. You Me probably do. I just learned it as <laughs> we started doing the terminal list. Yeah. Um, by the way, I love your book. And, oh, thank you. Uh, I, I don't understand why you got such shitty reviews. And I read the Daily Beast review, <laughs> which was horrible. I'm sorry. I write for the Daily Beast. Yeah. It doesn't mean I agree with him on everything. I thought it was fantastic. I think that Daily Beast uh, negative review of this show has made more people watch it or rewatch it than anything else. So I forget the guy's name, but uh, I mean, thank you. I talk about it on news shows all the time. It's, uh, it's such a fantastic, uh, horrible review. Uh, I mean, it's almost uh, going to live in infamy. Um, when I was on the... When I was today, I was on, on the treadmill running. I listened to you, like you're you're you you're, you're reading snippets of bad reviews of your show, <laughs> and and at one point you're you're just this sort of snide comment. You know, made someone be like, you know, come on, you can do better. I, I don't remember exactly. What yeah, it made me laugh so it made me laugh so hard that like coffee came out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah, off the treadmill. I remember that one. I think someone was a little trite, and I was like, come on, you know, you're doing so well, and then you have to do that. That uh, it's kind of fun to to read some of those, uh, especially yeah, that one was took offense to country music and uh, uh, flags and a couple other things. It was just kind of yeah, fun. Well, <laughs> every every like witless guy seems to be. I'm not saying witless. I mean, everybody seems to have been like, yeah, you know, if you have the terminalist on your list, you should cross it off. I'm like, I'm, yeah. come on. I know it's too easy, too easy. Leave this one off your list. Like, come on, you know. But I, I but I will tell you when I. You know, we're sort of digressing here a little bit, and then I'll, I'll tell you about my experience working with HBO and, and stuff. Um, I have had a list. You know, I have had a list of crossing off when I was looking for people that would that I felt would have a grudge against Goto Tadamasa, including um, his mistresses, which was all on this police file. I remember mm -hmm. going through that list one by one, crossing off people like, OK, this person might benefit me. This person might be worth talking to me. Mm -hmm. This is. This may be the source that will help me out. And I, it's like a printed list is a great thing to have. You just don't get that satisfaction from crossing it out on your iPad. Let me tell you. <laughs> Not the same as crossing it out in blood or something. I, um, so uh, the showrunner, uh, who is the person responsible for the whole show, J.T. Yeah. Rogers, and I went to high school together. No way. Um, yes. He was, we met in driver's ed. Um, and really interesting guy. He wrote a, um, uh, he is lived all over the world because of his, what his father's job was. And, um, he, he is a wonderful writer. He wrote a wonderful play about the CIA, um, in Afghanistan during, um, when Osama bin Laden was on our side, um, during the Russian occupation called blood and gifts, which huh. I think he would really love. I'm going to check that out. Um, I'm write that down. and, and, uh, and you know, he became the showrunner of this. So because he's my, one of my best friends, um, and also because Mari Yamamoto, who is uh, an actor and a writer um, in both languages and wrote with me for the Daily Beast as well, was in the writer's room as kind of a consultant. Mm. Um, it came together very well. I felt that I was heard. Mm. Um, 
that's very authentic. Even in Japan, the reviews have been very kind. Um, uh, you know, and, and I, I mean, I was really enjoyed like someone saying that, you know, the Yakuza have never been scarier than they are in this TV nice. series because that's how they really are. And I was wow. like, yes, that's yes. great. You know, it's not that it's not the comic book characters. Yeah. It was an incredibly positive experience. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, the whole that whole year has been been really nice. Um, the only sad thing about, you know, the last year has been that Mari Yamamoto, who was supposed to be doing this podcast with me, um, lucked out and like got got a lot of starring roles in like pachinko and then the new apple tv series gone so i've i've lost my writing partner to the acting world oh no oh yeah. no you know it happens uh, i'm looking forward to season two but um and it sounds like you had a really great experience too yeah. they even killed you on your show man. i got yeah exactly <laughs> i got to got to get uh, bumped off by my my main character so that was kind of a unique uh, way to go about having a cameo but i learned a ton too I, I you know i had no experience with screenwriting no experience with hollywood and i learned what a screenwriter was uh for the first the day i talked to him i'm sorry not screenwriter a showrunner was the, the the day that i talked to him back in december of 2019 and uh we've talked every day talked yesterday evening about a possible season two we'll see you know they have to big time negotiations up there with uh amazon and chris so we'll we'll see but i learned a ton it was a wonderful experience i, I loved it i hope yeah. there's a season two um i love revenge stores and ah, thank it you. was it, it was great i'm like i'm like i'm in that 94 percent that was like thumbs up nice thumbs up. awesome <laughs> love it thank you thank you um, but before we go can i ask you one question yeah, yeah. um it, it's it's not a particularly difficult question um you are a Joseph Campbell fan. And right. You read The Power of Myth, right? I read The Power of Myth. Uh, here with us out of the Southern Faces. I, and I seem to remember there being three volumes of The Power of Myth, but I can't. It's got to be in a box somewhere because I never throw any of those books out. And I got them after I watched the PBS series with Bill Moyers back in 1988. And we got the books. And they were large books, if you remember. They were like large books. But I can't remember if there was only one, two, or three volumes. I seem to think three volumes, but I can't. I need to check on that. So he, he's written several books about myths. Mm -hmm. And the, the one that you're thinking of, there was one volume from the TV series that was actually just this very coffee table, glossy yep. book. That's, that's beautiful. It. Yep. Um, what is your favorite myth? Ooh. What is what is your favorite myth? That is a, a great question that I've never been asked before. My favorite myth. Hmm. I'm just going to have to go back to some sort of like a rebirth type of a, a thing of changing somehow, because I always go back to that transformation, going into that cave, coming out transformed, returning home, um, obviously, which is, you know, Joseph Campbell's um, hero's journey, uh, in a very condensed form. Gosh, but if I was to point to, to one, I don't know if it's a myth or if it's just stories that I read growing up. And I point to Beowulf, where I point to um, uh, the, the Odyssey, Iliad, which are actually right right behind me, which I don't really you know miss. That's an oral story passed down uh, with lessons in it. Um, so I don't know. That's a very good question. I'm gonna have to put a little more thought into that. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, this is a weird thing. I'll just drop this because we're we're about to go. I still got like ten minutes before I gotta get. I got yeah, I got ten minutes before I get out of here because I just gotta notice that the car is running late. Um, I, I like the, the the myth of the Buddha. I always like. I I am a Zen Buddhist priest, though I'm not particularly religious, and that's a that's a long story. But you know, I, I consider that more of a myth than a reality. You know, okay. the guy guy sees birth, you know, death, suffering, and old age, and decides, you know, what is what is this world about? You know, is there 
is there, you know, is there life after this? You know, why are we here and all those things? Um, how, how old are you, Jack? I'm I like am 50. 49. What are you? Okay. Oh, well, I'm, I'm older than you. <laughs> Don't act so shocked. Um, uh, I, I do. I, I feel like you must be older than me in the sense that you're so, you've experienced much of the world. Well, I don't know. You've, you've had, you had quite the run. Um, you know, when I was, when I was young and I was having this conversation with my kid, the idea of reincarnation, mm. you know, seemed great. Right. And this idea that you would, that, you know, the, the ultimate goal of, uh, Zen Buddhism and Buddhism is, is kind of to escape from the cycle of birth and death, right. To not be reborn, to not be reincarnated, to be free from to greed. Elevate yourself. You know, yeah, to be freed from greed, ignorance, and and uh, and um, desire, and you know those, and anger, you know, and 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 to not be born again was just a you know, I mean, the the idea of liberation from those things, to be in control of yourself, that's appealing, right? But the idea of like, why would you not want to be reincarnated? Why would you you know want to escape from the cycle of birth and death? But at fifty three, as you sort of <laughs> life repeats itself. I mean, I, I'm not saying I want to die. I'm just saying, like, you know, actually, that doesn't sound so bad anymore. I, you know, I, I, that, that, it might be nice to be out of that cycle. Interesting, and that's their their idea is they keep living this life to get it to get it right, and then eventually yeah. Yeah. And elevate and themselves right, to this nirvana. Yeah, when you get it right, you 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 make a graceful exit, or you come back and help other people achieve that kind of same spiritual um, peace before fading out yourself. Yeah. You know, did you get that from thing. where you were living in college? Or did you, 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 you picked that up there and then stuck with it all these years or how did that I, go? I, I, I stuck with it all these years. And wow. then about four years ago, my, my, my Zen master, I guess you want to call it was kind of like, I'm getting old and I don't have a son and you are the, sadly, the only disciple I have. Um, and he's like, someone needs to continue that, you know, continue that you know, I, I need a disciple. I need to pass on my, my, transmit the teachings and he's like and i was like mm, i don't know if i'm the right guy and he's like and, it, and well it turns out that uh, i was born on the day he became a buddhist priest no way use that yeah so he used that to convince me that i should take the 10 priest vows and uh become a zen buddhist priest like him which which i am now no kidding you'll write a book about that that's interesting uh, I, I might the, the only hard one is, is you're not supposed to get angry which my my daughter definitely remembers that one. <laughs> yeah, they'll they'll hold that one over your head. Yeah, yeah, they're smart those um, kiddos. Jack, it has been such a pleasure talking to you. I Great really talking to you to too. Season two. Uh, thank you so much, and I'm looking forward to season two of Tokyo Vice and the next book. And uh, hopefully, we'll meet up in uh, in person one of these days. Yeah, come to Japan. Come oh, stay man. with me. No one will know who you are. Uh, I have a guest room. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, I've been there a couple of times. It's fascinating. Um, yeah, been in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, uh, Kyoto. Um, but uh, I'd love to go back. Love to go back and bring the family, actually. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Best of wishes with everything. And uh, hopefully I'll see you soon. All right, Jack. Thank Take you. care. Bye. Right, bye-bye. Thank you to Navy Federal, presenting sponsor of the Danger Close podcast. I've been a member since 1996, since my first couple months in the military. Thank you guys for being on the journey with me. Navy Federal Credit Union is helping their members save when they purchase new homes. They have loan options and resources to make sure you get a great deal. Now, Navy Federal will contribute $1,000 as a lender credit towards closing costs on your new home. 
Members also save on their monthly payments since there is no requirement for private mortgage insurance. Plus, Navy Federal offers low rates and fees so you can save even more. Navy Federal mortgage experts can help you choose the best option for you, making the home loan process a smooth experience. Learn more at NavyFederal.org. Our members are the mission. Insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Qualifying members with purchase mortgage applications after 916-22 may receive up to $1,000 towards actual closing costs applied at closing with no cash back and subject to loan program maximum contribution limits. Terms subject to change. Ask your loan officer for details. Navy Federal. I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one, in the Amazon series adaptation of the Terminal List. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code dangerclose 20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Rifle Coffee, America's Coffee, keep crushing. Let's talk about 10,000.cc. So 10,000, awesome company. If you have tried their interval shorts or their tactical shorts, which these are right here, you know that you are not going back to anything else. These things are awesome. And uh, I got a pair of pants from them recently, too. And man, amazing, amazing. Um, I've worn a lot of shorts over the years, obviously, being a West Coast SEAL at Team 5 when I started out. So that was kind of the, the thing. Um, but I have worn a lot of shorts. And these ones, hands down, the best. I mean, that's just how it goes. Uh, they were tested by over 50 special operations members in their testing phase. So it makes sense that they're awesome, but, uh, definitely try these out. Go to 10,000.cc, uh, follow them on Instagram. Same thing. 10,000.cc on Instagram. Uh, but go to the website, check it out. Super easy to order. Uh, there's not crazy amount of different options. So, uh, and then there's packages on there as well. I mean, they just do a fantastic job in all that they do. Free shipping, free returns, uh, go to 10,000 dot cc slash danger close for 15 percent off your order you will not regret it welcome to the gear highlight portion of the danger close podcast where to start i think with some black rifle coffee oh yeah this is the exclusive coffee subscription club and this is this month's and it is called waking the neighbors yep look at that right there Bam, every month you get one of these and a sticker. And I love that they tell you how to make it with all the different ways that you can. So that is very cool. Black Raffle Coffee, thank you so much. BlackRafflecoffee.com and Minnesota Leatherworks. So Minnesota Leatherworks, Kent Lee, thank you so much. They make the leather items on the website at officialjackcar.com on the merch side of the house when you hit shop. So these coasters, uh, the wallet that I have in my pocket here somewhere. So yeah, right there, these wallets, which I love. And they sent me a little something. They sent me this cool belt. 
So this uh, one-of-a-kind belt has the cross tomahawks on there. Not sure if you can see it, but Minnesota Leatherworks, thank you for the amazing work that you get to do. Uh, the whole crew over there is just awesome. So thank you. And got a little blade here from my buddy Trig French. And uh, Trig gave me this special blade a few days ago. And here it is right there. Check that out. Yep. The handle on this uh, it comes from a special place, and it's from well, High Peaks Knife Works made it. Um, but here's where the handle comes from: Theodore Roosevelt's Copper Beech Tree. And this says here on a cold, misty morning of June 25th, 2019, the Copper Beech Tree that Theodore Roosevelt planted in 1895 in front of his Sagamore Hill residence was removed by the National Park Service. So this handle right here comes from that tree, from Teddy Roosevelt's tree that he planted in 1895. So cool. So uh, Scott Porter made that at High Peaks Knife Works, and they are at highpeaksknifeworks.com. Uh, so be sure and check them out. And Trig, thank you so much for thinking of me. This is, uh, I can't even describe how special this blade is. Um, thank you, my friend. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Jake Adelstein, get his book, Tokyo Vice, watch the HBO series, follow him on Twitter at J-A-K-E-A-D-E-L-S-T-E-I-N, and on Instagram at Tokyo Vice. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels, officialjackcar.com. That is the website. You can sign up for the newsletter there and click shop for the merchandise. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there. Be safe, stay strong, keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What box do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or <laughs> right, right. An How, uh, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.